data by itself has no meaning. Data is worthless without context. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. The Culture and Technology Podcast is a virtual salon initiated by the Vienna Business Agency, in which experts from Vienna and around the globe explore how technology is reshaping the future of culture. In 2017, The Economist announced that the world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. I can understand why. We generate data in everything we do. When we move around, listen to music, search for things, buy things, or watch movies online. The companies that own this data, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, are some of the most powerful companies in the world right now. They probably know more about us than we do ourselves. But does that mean we have no control over our data? And how is culture being influenced by these huge amounts of data that we generate today? To find that out, I invited Sabine Seymour to join us. Sabine is a technologist, researcher, and entrepreneur who, after many years in New York City, recently returned to Europe, where she co-founded the Poly Poly Cooperative, a new initiative that aims to give people more control over their data. And for the second time in this podcast, we'll be joined by our dear Paul Feigelfeld. Paul is a media theorist, curator, and cultural scientist who investigates how technology changes the way we think, work, and produce art. Together with Paul and Sabine, we explore the question, how does data influence the way we experience and create culture? So maybe we could start by trying to define what we actually mean by data, because it's like many of these terminologies, it's something that we use every day uh, and that is thrown around quite widely in the media and in conversations, but rarely do people actually know what they're talking about or what the different facets of a terminology are. So maybe that's my first question to you, Sabine, would be um, how you define data for you or for us. Well, data per se is, an interesting terminology uh, in itself. However, the way I want to use it in this conversation is I want to really deviate from thinking about raw data, which if you, for example, have a sensor um, and you get, uh, you know, 39 degrees from your thermostate, that's data. Um, at the same time, if you uh, generate uh, data because you send a text message um, you also uh, create data through the text. Um, but you also create data um, because you're using uh, various uh, digital devices, um, various mobility devices, um, various streams uh, from your mobile phone. So you constantly generate data. However, data is worth pretty much nothing. I always call it uh, it's uh, sand uh, or you know, just raw wheat, uh, only when you uh, really contextualize it and make information out of it, then you actually have an interesting point to look into. So contextualizing different data sets. The other is data per se, again, has no meaning without, I would consider this wisdom. So you have data, uh, then you create information out of it. But we have a long-term history of understanding complex 
systems, whether that is technology, social systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so this systematic approach to me is then looking into creating wisdom. It's almost like your grandma looks at you and says, you look like you need chicken soup. That's wisdom because there's a lot of data because you heat up, you have a fever, you don't look that great, et cetera, et cetera. And all that for her is information that she already, because she has had this many, many you know, years over and over again, uses her wisdom to basically give you the chicken soup. So again, it's very long explanation. But it's a very good explanation and it brings me to the next two questions, basically, one is the aspect of, of time and training that it needs to gain this wisdom, um, uh, which is something that is also widely discussed. And I think we should dive into a little bit more is the way that um, smaller scale and larger scale systems dealing with data are training to create this kind of wisdom and experience uh, and what the training data are and what the resulting biases are. And uh, speaking of time, the other thing that we could talk about is maybe um, a little bit of the historical development of these concepts of data, because you could argue that uh, the concept of data is, is not one that is uh, automatically just come into being with um, digital media, but has existed long before that. And maybe we could try to trace that a little bit. So different forms of uh, preliminary data or prehistoric pa paleo data uh, through the history of knowledge. But maybe we can start with, with the, the next question, or you can give us some examples from your personal experience and, and professional history, how data learns or how we learn with data. I think data per se doesn't learn. Um, I think uh, data is used to create or to inform, to then learn from the information that is created. So that is one that I want to question because I know there is a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and learning systems and machine learning and um, et cetera, et cetera, and neurological networks and, and so forth. But I think we need to understand that, again, uh, data by itself is, has no meaning. Data is worthless without context. I remember when I was in, uh, in grad school, in business school, um, we basically were using Excel spreadsheets, right? So you created statistical patterns. So, of course, you know, you were inputting data to create those spreadsheets. So I'm, I totally misheard this, this into sadistical patterns. <laughs> no, no, no. It's statistical patterns. Um, and then when I moved on to, uh, to uh, you know, study interactive telecommunications, again, then, you know, data had a different meaning because then I used it as a, or then basically we used digital tools to automate to start automating processes. And so that's, you know, where we today end up with artificial intelligence, where or machine learning first, to be very frank, most of it is machine learning, where machines are basically uh, learning certain patterns. In my work, I, I researched a long time ago the history of cryptology, uh, which is very closely connected with the history of mathematics per se. So there's this one guy, uh, at the end of the 16th century called François Viette, 
who was a French mathematician and uh, cryptologist. Uh, he was basically, he was a lawyer, but then he also was a hobby mathematician and he worked for the French court um, while, while they were at war with the Spanish. And he uh, was the first one to sort of develop a universal method for cryptanalysis. Uh, and from that, because he was, you know, uh, researching frequencies of letters and something like this. Um, but from that, he developed um, symbolic algebra. So the first mathematical formula came into being. And uh, I always had the feeling that the, this is sort of one of the, the birth scenes of uh, a concept of a new concept of data or information or this relationship between data and information, because the new thing that he installed was the concept of a variable um, that hadn't existed before in mathematics. So you always were doing mathematics with very concrete values, but he sort of liberated this by saying, we don't have to know what we're dealing with. We can, you know, go many, many steps before we actually add value to something. So this sort of meaningless token that you can use to calculate, to create a reality uh, of whatever kind or analyze some sort of reality is something that I think was paramount in the development of the scientific revolution in the 17th century and hence, of course, also everything that came after that sort of surmounted into the computer. Um, and maybe this sort of pops back up when we, when we look at the first the technological um, definitions of information and data from the 1940s in Claude Shannon's work, um, where he defines information as the opposite of noise. Um, but also only, you know, this in this very, very nice combination that it can only exist with noise and, and sort of pure information and pure noise is both not really possible, as is pure chance or, or random numbers. Well, I, and I think I think that's you know that's where bias is 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 basically coming in into into uh, particularly the conversations that we currently have with with AI and unbiased data or biased data. I think it's a very important discussion. Do you think people uh, sort of messed it up in the beginning? Was there a basic misunderstanding that they thought or they had this desire for the cleanliness of something like raw data that doesn't exist? You know, just to say technology isn't biased, it's sort of neutral, um, it's it's just a tool and, and there, there, there can be no politics or social bias or anything in that. And from that, over the coming decades, it sort of um, fucked itself up? Well... I think I think that would be in the context of the internet per se. So I would I would first you know start with the internet um, and uh, the way in the early '90s the internet was created. Um, there wasn't really much talk about data per se. It was literally about you know being able to speak with people on the other side of the planet uh, or digitize music uh, and play and stream um, and, uh, you know, create an openness um, and uh, democratize, you know, uh, nations uh, by the sheer fact that, you know, we have information about these uh, different countries. So there was a lot about, you know, making the world a better place um, through technology, through digital technology, particularly, like I said, the internet. So I think in the beginning stages, um, we definitely had 
you know, a very different mindset um, that then, you know, turned into, um, you know, we recently spoke about surveillance capitalism and, um, you know, the way that uh, it, beca- it, it turned into something else. And from my own experience, you know, I mean, I, I've been online since 91. I was one of the first students uh, really you know, working with, first of all, Mosaic, predecessor, you know, uh, of Netscape. Uh, I know, I remember when we dialed into the White House in 94, and this was a big thing. It took at least a cigarette to download, you know, one image. Uh, so that's, you know, from, from that time on, uh, we were, you know, highly motivated uh, to really think about the information that we, you know, that's the term information highway. I don't know whether people still remember that, you know. Uh, so that was a very positive, you know, uh, way of thinking about it. And of course, then we had 2000 where everything went down the drain. But I think to me, it was like, well, everything was so cool. And we already had talked about distributed technologies that nowadays are, you know, a big term in the, particularly in the whole, you know, cryptocurrency world. and then there was Amazon, you know? Uh, so, uh, and then now you can argue, you know, was that a good thing? Was that a bad thing? Um, and where is all that now? So It's a difficult question. I mean, we, we talked about it beforehand because I'm, I'm a slightly younger. So I've been, I've had a few years less on the internet and I, I went into it, I think more naively, like late, the late nineties when I was really starting to use it. I also just subscribe to this affirmative utopianism, uh, thinking that, yeah, it's fucking great because also, um, I really didn't have the education yet to, to know what kind of an infrastructure or protocols are beneath, um, all these ideas. Uh, once I learned that, it quite quickly became clear that a uh, protocol like TCP IP, for example, um, is something that is comes from a certain mindset. It's a defense architecture. And it's something where you make certain decisions at every possible node. Um, and meaning, like, to create a truly open internet would mean to create entirely new protocols and an entirely new infrastructure. And this is something where we slowly, I think, starting to get, or people are slowly starting to get the idea. At the same time, of course, we have built such a huge cathedral a sprawling mess on this, on top of this infrastructure that it's very hard to remodel the place, you know? Well, I would argue, I would argue that uh, it's hard, but it's feasible. It's feasible and it's, it's the only sustainable thing to do. And maybe that can bring us to our next topic, uh, which, which sort of where we try to not only talk and, and uh, nerd off uh, about tech stuff, but also bring culture into play. Um, because uh, I think what would be really interesting is to speculate uh, and think about the role of culture in redesigning and remodeling these infrastructures, but also through practices, but also the practices practiced on these infrastructures and platforms. And uh, I think you you have a lot to tell us about that because you have done that from the very beginning, right? Absolutely. I think uh, I think it's an amazing opportunity to think about again. I'm talking about digital technologies because I think we also had talked about the fact that it is very difficult to create 
uh, and use a digital tool for creation if you don't understand the tool. So I was using, or I'm always using the metaphor of an amazing painter who knows everything about the colors, the mixing, the textures, um, you know, the screen, whatever he or she, you know, needs to know about creating that painting. However, he or she is not a chemist. So they are not basically you know, creating the actual paint, the actual oil, if you say, if it's an oil painting. But um, in my opinion, uh, you know, there is a certain delineator in digital technology where if you want to be uh, creative, um, a creator of culture, um, somebody that uses these types of tools to, you know, manifest uh, your ideas and your art and your craft, then you need to understand at least your oil. Again, you don't need to be a chemist. So you don't need to, you know, build a computer and know about processing or even C++, you know, some very, very like, you know, um, uh, harsh, you know, and difficult programming languages that you might need to learn. I know, but you can, you have those tools now that you can use on top of that, you know, baseline. And so um, that would be when, you know, you use it as a tool or you use digital tools. However, and I think this is very, very important. Digital technology currently is influencing our culture in an extreme way. Um, and so it is uh, very interesting to think about, uh, you know, what does it do? You know, who is, who is basically influencing our culture that is created? Uh, who is using the, those types of tools and who is using digital technology per se? What is it used for? Um, is it, you know, is it, uh, is it a tool or is it, um, you know, a manifestation of, of society? Something that also has to be taken into account, I think, is who makes these tools uh, and the way in which they are uh, accessible and provided by companies, by educational institutions, for example, and the way that they are shapeable also. Because uh, as we have by now hopefully figured out, the tools very much shape our practice. Um, shape uh, the content or the creative output that we produce with them. Um, and therefore, in the long run, of course, shape how we work because they give us certain limitations, certain freedoms uh, and stuff like this. While many of them, especially on, on a very highly professional level, are, of course, proprietary, basically black boxes. Some of them might not be, but many are. So I think this is something that has to be taken into account, and maybe you can weigh in on that, uh, in your experience, how you have experienced working with certain limitations of, of the tools you use, um, and where it sort of prompted you to maybe go further, to change, to adapt, and to overcome. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, most of the digital tools that we are using right now are not made in Europe. So, uh, you know, and that doesn't say anything about, you know, um, well, that basically means that our culture, our way of thinking 
is not reflected in those tools. So, you know, I just want to leave it at that because I think that is one thing that is, uh, you know, regardless whether it's a commercial entity or not, and made just for commercial purposes or not, it's just not made by our thought process. Yeah, then I want to ask maybe further because it, it it's maybe it, this brings us to to the next question whether we can think of um, realities or future situations where these tools are designed and manufactured in a different process in a different location by a different group of people in a different way you know we've I think we should definitely talk about data commons but we could also talk about design commons, if you will, you know? Um, so it's not only the data that has to be shared or the, the raw materials, if you will, um, that, that you try to manipulate, but also the openness of the tool sets has to be discussed. And this is something that I understand you are also concerned with for quite a while already. And um, maybe you can tell us something about your experience there. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, just a just a little uh, historical context. So, I've lived in the U.S. since '91, and two years ago, I moved back to Europe, uh, literally in May of 2018, and uh, that was because of GDPR. Uh, because I have, I've had the idea of create a um, a different type of uh, business model for. Um, one of my startups where I wanted to democratize healthcare. And I said, well, I, if I want to democratize healthcare, I need to have a model where all the data that is captured by people um, that are, you know, uh, providing uh, that type of data, um, they also need to be reimbursed. Uh, but how do we do this in a way that we make sure that their privacy is actually uh, not infringed upon and they have data sovereignty and really can't understand you know, what is happening with the data and make their own decisions. So, um, you know, so at the end of the day, I was thinking about a cooperative model. How would that actually work? And uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, we have impact investors um, and uh, the understanding of what I wanted to do was very foreign. <laughs> uh, that was before Seabirds Unite became a, a movement. And uh, I always make a joke. I said in the US, I'm considered a socialist bordering a communist because I'm talking about a cooperative. And, uh, you know, and here I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, you're from the US, you're a capitalist, you know? <laughs> so, so I figured, uh, why not go back to Europe and create a new model? And where where are you at right now with that? So that endeavor actually turned out that I joined uh, a startup in Berlin um, and uh, called Poly Poly, uh, building a data cooperative, where we are building exactly that model that allows you to become a member of the data cooperative um, and uh, and have full sovereignty over your data, and uh, if you want to. Uh, rent your data per se, you give the option um, to rent your data to receive, um, you know, a financial remuneration. But if you don't want, you don't want to. So, um, and the data cooperative per se as a cooperative uh, is sharing uh, the dividend at the end of the year. So if you have, you know, a, a membership, you basically, it's almost like a stock, you get a dividend at the end of the year. So to me, that is an interesting model. Um, 
And can I, can I inquire some more? Because just for, for every anyone who listens to this um, and has trouble wrapping their head around it. So what kind of data does this entail? What kind of data are people who are part of this cooperative producing, contributing? So basically you have to think about it as um, an app that is on top of your, in your iPhone. And then on top of that app, you generate, All right. you know, you have basically load a lot of other apps on top of it. So every app you're using, you generate automatically data. And so that data, whatever it is, every single person generates different data, you know, and then you basically can decide which of the data points you want to share or not. It's a very complex system. And literally we are launching our first uh, polypod, we call it um, beginning of next year. And currently we are building the data cooperative. So we're basically um, looking into, um, you know, very, very big structures and very big systems um, that allow us to actually uh, have members from all over Europe to work with us. Okay. Okay. All right. I think um, we should talk about next steps. And uh, and sort of maybe try to just very briefly cast uh, at least some, somewhat of a wish of a, a prediction of what comes next or what we what we want to come next. And well, I think I think it's a combination. I think one is we um, and and again you talk about you know cultural creation, um, meaning that you have to start building new tools. I think that's one thing. The other is thinking about different models, how to actually monetize, right? Because as cultural creators, it's usually, you know, pretty uh, difficult to actually, you know, make a living from, from what you do. The other, I think what is to, for me also important is that we use data, use digital tools, digital technologies consciously and we not only limit ourselves by what is already out there but really thinking it in like anew and so for me it's less about you know digitizing existing content that's archiving that's one thing of the equation but for me it's about using digital technologies and and data per se to really keenly use it as a positive aspect, um, you know, that allows us to really look into a creation of, of a society that we want in the future, a culture, a, you know, that we are interested in participating That's a good point. I always have this image in my head of, because we always talk about the tech sector and the cultural sector, which in, for me, having studied computer science always makes me think about hard drives uh, and, and memory sectors. Um, so in, in my head, like I look at society or our reality in terms of a partitioned hard drive that has different sectors. Uh, and it's very hard to restructure because once you start messing around with the sectors, it's very easy to just fuck something up, you know, and delete some information or maybe mess up the whole thing. So um, I'm very interested in, in thinking about sort of sensible ways of, of restructuring 
the relationship between culture and technology, but not only sector-wise in terms of this is a means of production and this is a means of production. And of course, we all have to think about monetization, but how can we change the culture uh, in general, that uh, like if we, if we see culture also as a third term that is overarching culture and technology, the culture of cultural technology, sort of second second degree culture that entails, you know, sustainability, education, um, um, political um, agency in terms of realizing that everything we do, because this is something that people slowly start to realize, um, I think hopefully, that um, everything happens within this. Um, and it's not something that exists separate of us. And everyone sort of is a technological producer in some way or the other, to some degree or another degree. As you said, not everyone is a chemist, but uh, somehow everyone paints, you know, if, if we want to use that metaphor. Um, so uh, instilling this kind of responsibility into it, into our culture as a whole, if you say like European culture, for example, but global culture, hopefully, um, would be the main goal, I think, um, to, to, to make people realize that everything they do plays a role. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, I think th like the, the term data ethics is coming up a lot, right? We're talking about ethic, the ethic, the use of data, um, et cetera, et cetera. The ethics is, is very much, you know, as a philosophical term, and I think you Paul know better than anybody else when it comes to that, um, uh, you know, how, how ethics in, in terms of, you know, that term, well, that context is defined, is that we as a society, really as a collective, now thinking about data, how ethical do we want to use data? That means that we need to learn where the data comes from, what it what people are doing or what corporations are doing with our data. So, you know, right now, you know, a lot of people are using digital tools without understanding who they are playing or caring or who basically uh, gains from, you know, their production of, of data. And then at the same time, you know, how um, there are a lot of, technologies and there are companies out there and there are nonprofits out there that, you know, really want to educate uh, and make sure. So for me, the future for data in, in a cultural creative process in a society where I really want to live is that we uh, make sure uh, that there is an education about data, data ethics, um, that is ingrained um, in an education. So, because to me, it's a raw material. You know, there was a time when you need to learn how to, you know, plow your field. And now you need to learn how to actually, you know, use data in a way that, you know, doesn't infringe on, on you as a person, um, yeah. but you actually gain from it. Yeah, I think we can leave it at that. It's a fantastic ending point and outlook for further discussions. So yeah, well, thank you a lot, Sabine. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And on that note, we come to the end of this episode of the Culture and Technology Podcast. Join us next time as we move from tiny bites to big buildings will be joined by two architects who explore 
the changing role of physical and virtual spaces to experience culture. For now, if you're keen to know more about Sabine's or Paul's work or how we can rewire our relationship to our data, take a look at the show notes in your podcast app. We have gathered a list of interesting links for further reading. Last but not least, the Culture and Technology podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports Vienna's businesses, economy, and creative industries, and in doing so, shapes the city's future. Stay tuned. Until next time.